All right, friends and listeners, today's episode is a really special one. I've said that before, but I really, truly, not marketing language, really mean this one uh, because this is, well, I meant, I meant them in all of them, but this one really is unique in that it is a founder having a conversation with a church pastor. Today's episode is with uh, the pastor of the church that my wife and I attend here in San Francisco called Reality SF. And before you think it's this kind of new agey, and maybe it is a little new agey, kind of church with with rock band and a kind of a cliche of of the traditional church that, that we're all aware of, um, I've got to say Dave Lomas, the pastor and the founder of of Reality SF is is a founder like so many other founders I've had on this podcast, except what he started was a church here in the heart of, of San Francisco, a city not necessarily known for its reception for conventional Christianity. Dave and and his church knows their customer. It's a 20, 30-something, skeptical, typically secular uh, individual that has moved to, many of which have moved to San Francisco for a job or for uh, financial engineering of some kind and, and are of the cerebral intellectual sort. And Dave speaks to that audience really well. He truly knows that, knows his audience, and he, and he speaks to it uh, quite well. You can listen to any of his, his lectures and sermons online uh, on their own podcast. It's a very, very technology-forward operation that they're running over there. And speaking of knowing a customer, yeah, they've got a, their sermons are in podcast form for people that can't make the service. And now they have, they have audience members around the world listening to his, his sermons because they are so dang good. They are uh, truly mind-blowing, and it's a really nice grounding wire for, for me as a creator each week to go and listen to someone talk about something that has nothing to do with entrepreneurship, but has everything to do with being useful in one's community. And, and I, I really enjoy attending um, reality but I love this conversation more than any other interaction I've had with, with Dave. It's the most honest interaction I've had with him and by far the most honest interaction I've ever had with, with a pastor. Probably the, the most honest reflection and interaction from a pastor that I've, that I've ever heard. So I cannot uh, overstate the gratitude I have for how open he is with what it's like to be a pastor. I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Playcast Media. Go to playcastmedia.com to get the easiest way. If you want the easiest way to, to get a in-home or in-office premium professional podcast, go to playcastmedia.com. It's what I use. It is the easiest way. One click, boom, it's all delivered to your door. Everything you need for an amazing premium, polished, professional podcast it's the premium podcast in a box. Go to playcastmedia.com. It's playcastmedia.com and enter the code name James and you will get 10% off. This episode is also sponsored by Dope Dog. 
I don't know how Dave would feel about this, but you can give your dog CBD treats if you feel like they need a little little something to relax. My dachshund Wendell, uh, he yaps quite a bit and got to be honest, ever since we discovered Dope Dog about three months ago, it has been a different scene in our household. They make CBD treats for dogs and dogs love them because they taste amazing and make them feel better. Whether it's joint pain, whether it's anxiety, it is something you should consider. I kind of laugh, but it is truly, truly a game changer for us. Using human-grade ingredients and high-quality CBD, Dope Dog makes everything from treats, oils, even CBD shampoo. Um, If your dog is ready to be dope, go to Dope Dog. And you can use below the line as the promo code to get 20% off of anything at www.dope.dog, dope.dog. That's www.dope.dog and see for yourself what all the hype is about. All right, without further ado, let's get into it with Dave Lomas. This is Below the Line. Dave, cheers. Cheers. We've got uh, some, what are we drinking here? Bye. Bye. Coconut water? Molokai coconut, I think, or something. Ooh, that is good. I told you. Oh, wow. I'm 100% addicted to this stuff. Wow. That is seriously good. And we have a, for listeners, we have a a weird uh, drink every episode. And this one is provided by Dave, who we'll, we'll touch on in a little bit. He's a purveyor of amazing things in many different categories. Uh, I imagine you spend a lot of time sifting and finding and seeking really amazing things, including a drink each day. You drink this every day? I drink one. I limit myself to one a day. It's hard. When did you discover this? Is, and I'm not joking. I'm kind of ear to ear smiling because it is so good. It's delicious. Um. I think that's the thing. Like I, I want, um, sometimes I'll search out, like, I want this thing, whatever it is, you know, the drink I want to drink in the morning. I have coffee. I can't drink coffee all day. Um, as you know, as a fellow founder, you start usually something you're founding with all the caffeine and all the coffee and all the things that keep you going. And it just Mm -hmm. destroys you internally. Mm-hmm. And I just did me. So I can have one cup in the morning after two trips to the ER, you know, when we first started the church. And, and so. What do you, what do you mean? Two trips to the ER? Well, the church, the first like three years of the church, it was full on like coffee all day, meetings all day, eating really bad food, just going through, like ending the day with like going out for a drink with someone from the church or whatever. And just that over and over and over again. I think the first, you know, few years gained a ton of weight and just my insides were destroyed. And then thought I was having a heart attack twice, went to the ER and they're like, no, it's um, as, like acid reflux and stress or something. And that took me off everything like caffeine and like spicy food and fatty foods and every everything I loved, which was, you know, they said, you, I'm like, what am I? What do I eat? What, where did the stress come from? What was the, what were the things? 
like explicitly that were stressing you out? Oh, I think it was just the, the, the starting, we started a church in San Francisco that um, when we started, it kind of took off, like grew really fast, faster than we thought, way faster than we thought. And then the demands of keeping that going um, and meeting new people and trying to, you know, there was a ton of momentum at first. And I think one of the greatest fears that I've had is um, I grew up in um, Bakersfield, um, California, where it's kind of rural, rural sprawl, you know, where uh, a, a Walmart or Target will open up and then all this really cool stuff happens around that that mm-hmm. mega store, all these stores, and then that anchor tenant will leave, and then everything turns into these secondhand rundown stores that you know mm-hmm. that are not. And I, I've always had this internal turns into fear. A Kohl's. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Remember Mervins before Kohl's? I do. Okay. Yeah. That's so <laughs> better to have a Kohl's than a Mervins. Yeah, that's true. So I was, um, I always feared like there would be this momentum in our church. And then we would never root and it would just turn into something I never wanted it to be. So I was first excited about the growth of our church. And San Francisco is a pretty difficult place to start up a religious movement, you know, a spiritual movement, even though San Francisco is very spiritual. Um, But I mean, we're a non-denominational church planted right in the Castro mission districts of San Francisco. Um, that's not easy. And so when it was growing really fast, the idea, our hope was that, well, like a lot of it, hope and fear. My hope was that we'd be here for the long term. My fear was we'd be this like flash in the pan sort of like thing that just happened that was really cool that happened from 2010 to 2015, then we disappeared, you know? Mm-hmm. So I had all the stress to like root us, establish us. Um, as a as a church that would go the distance in our generation you know so that brought on tons of stress that turned into like you know trying to keep up the pace that turned into internalized stress that turned into a really bad kind of stomach ailments and all this stuff that sent me to the er twice yeah and then after that like had to change my diet to change the way my rhythms my lifestyle which brings us back to buy. So mm. I get one cup of coffee in the morning and I wanted to find that good drink I can have that wouldn't like activate like pain in my stomach or acid reflux or whatever. And I like coconut water, but it just doesn't do it for me all the time. But then I found this stuff that's like a coconut drink mm. and it has a little bit of green tea, caffeine. It's so good. Oh, it does have green tea in it. A little bit of green tea. Oh, wow. Not much, just a little bit. And it sounds like my this is your new drink. drink. This yeah. is your new drink. Seriously, because I drink. I was showing you the drink that I have every uh, afternoon. It's green tea as well. I hope I get a case of it sent by by. Hope yeah. they just listen to this and they send me a case. Well, since I started doing these weird, weird like drinks, that has started to happen. Which is, I kind of wanted to manifest that where oh. companies would send me um, weird drinks, and that started to happen. Which is, which is, uh, which is cool. So, but this one is not. And I try to proactively select them. I'm not just going to be a shill mm. that uh, that will do whatever for free drinks. But this one you selected, and it couldn't be more fitting because um, one, it fits the weird drink uh, category perfectly, 
but um but i also knew there was going to be a lot of reasoning behind it because very intentional with the things that you choose and that's i mean it's literally for listeners it is for the chairs you sit in desk we were chatting about before we hit record just the um the designs actually we weren't chatting about this before we hit record but the design and intention behind everything that your church does that reality does um it's so well thought out like music the lighting um and and my wife and i we have attended for the last seven years and um really excited for this this episode because it's a different type of it's a founder of a different ilk but a founder nonetheless um and to hammer that point home so it's so interesting about buy but uh and and your choice because it is so dang good but i will also say um to the route that you got there two trips that you are being very intentional in what you're eating and drinking every day um i i don't know if i've told you but i i think i have i also went to the er yeah i remember that for about a year and a half and two years in to uh building my company um way too many coffees Mm -hmm. five six seven coffees a day gosh and uh had it caused uh contributed heavily to a heart condition uh, it's hard to know what the exact cause, yeah. cause was, but they know caffeine and stress are, are two of the biggest contributing factors and had to go to the ER and have a cardio version mm-hmm. where they just basically shock your heart back into rhythm. My gosh. Like two weeks before getting married. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, that was a wake up call too. I probably still consumed six or seven coffees for like six months. After because, that. Yeah, because I would just, I couldn't imagine I was so, I leaned on it so much um, to get through the day. And I was, the, until it was probably 30, 40, 50 people uh, around that time frame. So it was just, I, I leaned on this, this uh, external ingredient of caffeine so much, thought that I needed it, that yeah, I just couldn't, st- even though it had sent me to the ER. Mm-hmm. Luckily, uh, over many years, um, you know, weaned off it, but that is very, very similar. Yeah. Uh, stories in a very similar mentality of wow we're so lucky to have this momentum i don't want to ruin this opportunity mm-hmm. which creates uh so much scarcity in mm-hmm. your head of like i know how rare this is i don't want to ruin it and that mm-hmm. attachment to maximizing that opportunity for me was uh that attachment was so unhealthy yeah yeah totally we get attached to things like caffeine or whatever drug it is to like keep the thing that you're that's working really well in your life going and that's the dark side the shadow side of it is it's also killing you at the same time mm-hmm. and it can be the very thing that is your downfall i mean that's life though i mean that's literally most of like the thing that we have to mature past is as people humans leaders is like the, the thing that you're really good at probably has this shadow side that left unchecked will destroy you, you know? Mm-hmm. And then usually what happens with, um, <clears throat> with time and circumstance, life has a way of, and I, I believe God has a way of conspiring with your life to show you if you're, if, if you're fortunate to show you your shadow side in a way you can grow from it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
That's a good way of articulating yeah. that growth is is making you come face to face with your shadow side. Yeah. Yeah, um, if you're lucky. A lot of people are lucky enough for that to happen to them, fortunate enough for that to happen to them without them being completely destroyed and losing everything. Well, you're the second podcast guest that has mentioned shadow side. Where where does that terminology come from? Oh man. Um, that's a good question. I don't know the the where that has come from. I've read it through a lot of spiritual writers. Um, I think it's like your your um, your weakness, the part of your life that's left unchecked, the part of your life that um, that is uh, is like the dark side of of like. So if if you're if you're a creator and you know you're really good at creating, you're kind of like the under the dark underbelly to to that could be the way you treat people and the dark underbelly could be like you you can like see people as a means to your end right and that's see other like, people in relationships as as you see your stylus or yeah, your exactly. paintbrush and a lot of creators just like that's just who i am and i just i the, the thing i'm creating is way bigger than any person um and if they're if they're fortunate enough they could they can be shown their shadow side so oftentimes through failure and then grow from it um and then still be able to create but to, to care for people or to deal with that dark side yeah so dark side underbelly shadow side i think that's i've learned that i'm sure other people have said it in all kinds of different worlds but the world i i'm coming from are like spiritual writers that ha have written about about your shadow side yeah yeah, it is a um, the the thought that comes to mind is is this book that that I mentioned on the podcast a bunch. Um, what got you here won't get you there, mm -hmm. and tying in that shadow side to to the actual anecdotes of both of us unsustainably taking paths towards our own yeah. own paths of creation. Um, it is that this concept in this book, what got you here won't get you there, uh, just articulates in so many ways in life what got you to this place is the very thing that will keep you from getting that's right to the next place or to graduate beyond it or set in your um you know parlance of of just um your what has helped you create could actually destroy you yeah along the way yeah when the way that the analogy that i have or the the mental picture that i have of that is like um rocket boosters that get you to outer space like they launch you from earth to outer space, but then they fall to the earth and they can't take you to where you're going next, you know? Mm, yeah. So that's usually the mental picture that I, that I come up with the whole, what got you here won't get you there. So there's things in my life that have gotten me to, you know, mid thirties to being a, uh, a founding pastor of a church. And, um, a lot of it was rooted in the way I grew up and, um, the way I had to, to survive and kind of, use my my own experience and see the world in a certain way and it got me to where i was and it's not the way that i'm going to get into my 40s and 50s mm -hmm. and so i had to let those fall to the earth like the rocket boosters got me here and i just like let them go now you know yeah. you have to say goodbye to them mm -hmm. you have to like mourn them and like thank you for right. getting me yeah, marie kondo that stuff you know like thank you and let them go you know that yeah. sort of thing yeah totally um there's there's so many areas that we can um, talk about that I'm so excited to 
chat about, but you mentioned your life and kind of your um, that arc and getting to your mid-30s and starting a church. Um, what are, tell me three stories that have helped shape who you have become today, you know, here in San Francisco, sunny day in, in San Francisco. Um, yeah. In it's July. Nice. Yeah. What, tell me three stories that have helped shape, shape Dave. Yeah. Um, so there, these, uh, if I was to say three stories that helped shape who I am, they're fairly heavy stories. They're not like a light story. I think yes. ma- most Get of them below are the probably. line, below the line. Um, so the first story would be my like story of just parents growing up. Um, uh, I thought in my early thirties that I grew up in a home that was full of love and support. And in many ways, I think that was true, but then in my, you know, my twenties and my thirties, my sisters would always bring up stories of us as kids. And I'm like, I don't, I don't remember that. Like, I don't remember stories from being like all the stories they would bring up. And, and where, where were you in the line of kids? I, I'm the oldest. So it's not like I'm the youngest. Oh, I don't remember that I was too young. I was, mm-hmm. I was the oldest. And my sisters were like, why don't you remember anything from our childhood? So come to find out in my, like, like my mid thirties through some, through therapy and, um, spiritual director and stuff like that. I kind of realized that I like suppressed most of my childhood because it was so traumatic. And I think the way that this story my with my mom and my dad, both suffering from their own forms of addiction and abuse and cycles like this. And, um, I think the way it shaped my story was that I have a way of like, like compartmentalizing pain or I had a way of compartmentalizing pain and seeing the, uh, intuiting, like the upside to everything. Like I'd go into a place and I would be able to like lead through intuition and see, like show the, show the beauty and the bright side of things. And, but it, it came out of all this pain. You know, I think Malcolm Gladwell's book, Dave and Goliath helped me see a lot of like, you, you grow up with these things that seem like they're, they're, keeping you from being who you're who you're supposed to be you 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 see them as being like um roadblocks but they're actually not they're actually the the reason why you are who you are Mm. so growing up with parents that were my home life being so erratic and unstable it allowed it helped me see the world would be an example of of um yeah my dad um pretty heavy alcoholic my mom um kind of growing up shielded us and me and my sisters from a lot of abuse from my dad who at this point has completely um apologized for as owned all that stuff but it's pretty and still a lot of it's suppressed that i hear secondhand through my mom and my sisters um and then um my mom like having so much trauma growing up to where she raised us like as someone who had a, I think at that point, a sixth grade education and um, immigrated here from Mexico when she was really young, um, dropped out of school really young, got married really young, had me really young. And so all of that, like, my childhood, I just wasn't, didn't feel like I was like set up to succeed. Um, but I think my mom was able to hold stability and love and protection enough 
to give me a, a really good fighting chance to to do something well with my life. And then once I once I graduated high school, she got addicted to to drugs and like left left was gone from the family for like seven years or something. Wow. So and did you know at the time, or did you were you able to, in some way, observe that she was shielding that she was absorbing a lot of this? Not was I was a kid. No, none. She told me, uh, like five years ago, she was like, I was asking her questions, like, what happened growing up? She's like, you don't remember? I'm like, I honestly do not remember. It's so deeply buried, and I need help, like accessing it. So she would say, yeah, I mean, my dad would get drunk and start throwing things, and I would, I would hide you kids or send you to the neighbor's house or like what i don't don't remember any of that stuff so and then my mom at that point once we got grew up a a bit i was in high school i graduated high school i don't i think she was just like kind of over that cycle and then um she said gave herself to drugs because it made her feel strong and then it destroyed her and then she went through a rehab program. What, what do you mean out. by made her feel strong? She was um, addicted to meth for a while. And if if you know anything about meth, it just makes you feel superhuman when you're on meth. Um, so, and it was so strange. I mean, thinking back, my mom started using drugs when I was in high school. That was when I started using drugs. And we were using drugs at the same time in different rooms me and my friends up all night in my bedroom, her up all night, like in the garage, wow. not even knowing why my mom was up in the garage, not even putting two and two together. So like my, so the, to, like the story that has shaped me is like the, the, this, like growing up family of origin sort of story. That's really harsh, but in some ways, the way that I kind of coped and survived turn me into the kind of person that helped me read a room really well. I think having a dad who is he drunk, not drunk. Is it right? I can read people. I can read high rooms. stakes to not read the room. Yeah, right, if, exactly. If your dad is in that state. Yeah. Read the room, know how to like somehow figure out how to like manage the chaos of a, of a, of my family, like manage different people. Like, no, that we're doing this. We're doing that. This is what I think I, I just learned that from a, a young age. Um, you know, we talked about the Enneagram before we got on. I'm Enneagram seven, which I think, you know, people don't know nature, nurture. How does Enneagram show up in someone's life? Personality test. And for listeners, you can check out the Diana Chapman episode where, where she chats about what an Enneagram is, but it's a type of personality test that um, kind of instead of a personality of this is this is who you are at your best. It's kind of like this is this is, these are the outward signs of what is kind of dark inside of you. Yeah. So that you can overcome it. Right. Right. And to re- become a, re- a redeemed version of yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of looks at the the seven deadly sins plus two. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, Enneagram seven, enthusiast, gluttony, like I want it all right now. I see. So I think nature, nurture, you know, I think a lot of my personality comes from the nurture side. I know some nature part plays into it but a lot of i see a lot of nurture side like uh, the need to avoid pain is like the slogan for the seven right which is i can see like 
growing up. That was my life. I needed to avoid pain. What did I do? I suppress pain. Um, drugs in high school were my favorite things in the world to do. Like my favorite things in the world to do because it would what, suppress what drugs? pain. Um, I did pretty much everything outside of heroin when wow. I was in high school. Yeah. Wow. Like, I don't like needles, so didn't get into that. But pretty much everything outside of heroin. Yeah. And I and I I mean I can say it's so weird to say I loved it, but I did. Like I loved any Enneagram like seven would know like like one of my favorite things to do is to go get surgery. So they put me under like that moment right before I go under. I love it so much. Oh, <laughs> it's so man. weird. I don't know. Like That's, just no I, I, well, it's, like oh that, that feeling of dish, I'm gone. Well, talking about the the shadow, you know, terminology and and uh integrating one shadow, like you have to recognize it's there. Yeah. That shadow side of of and you know the the one thought that comes to mind is what got you here won't get you there and and I like that that's a great visualization of the rocket boosters. The other thought is is just this this uh, thematic thought of our strengths are our weaknesses mm -hmm. and they are in separate buckets of like you're punctual but your weakness is you're not creative. It's actually they're they really are so tied together yeah. um, and uh, your strengths are in in so many ways weaknesses and and so your avoidance of of i think to integrate one shadow requires you to really acknowledge yeah your pain full 360 degrees of just yeah the pain and yeah just the fact that observation of you loved yeah uh, i did drugs yeah yeah and that was like the which is so cliche of every pastor i chat with it's yeah like it's uh, this uh, this story kind of it's you everybody's heard this <laughs> no, <laughs> no it's i'm joking this is uh um Wow. Okay. So keep yeah, going. So I, I, um, so I think that that story really shaped me, and I and I've reconciled that story uh, over the last probably five to eight years, and I'm still in the middle of it too with my with my folks and trying to live in the healthy relationship with them, and um, still there's tons of love there. That's the thing. If I was to describe my childhood, it'd be love. There was a lot of love, but it was like, it didn't come without pain, a lot of pain. And the pain is what I like ran from. And I embrace love. I mean, I'm a very loving person. My parents still very affectionate towards me and me to them. And, but so that shaped me a lot. I think that shaped my personality. That shaped my like both intuition and the, the, um, this, like the way I, I, I'm an enthusiast. And I love to start things. Uh, you know, I think there's an old um, Mad Men quote that I that I remember that stuck with me watching that series. I think it was when the main Don Draper, the main character, was like um, seeing that new girl that he was not his wife when they got divorced, and then he's talking to his wife. I'm totally forgetting her name in in the movie. January now. Jones or January, her character, and January says to. Don Draper, whatever his real name is, John Ham, John Ham's character. Uh, she says, "Does this new girl know that you like the beginning of things?" Mm. And uh, I remember watching that, and going, "Oh my gosh, that's like such a great description of like my personality type. I love the beginning of things. I love starting new things, but like four years into it, I I don't like them as much, and I get bored with them. So." So this leads into the second like story that shaped my life is my marriage. I've been married for seven, 
16 years, 16 or 17. I don't know math. So <laughs> somewhere around 2002 is when I got married. Mm -hmm. And um, Ashley and I have been together since 1996 dating. So we've been together for most of our lives. Um, and um, the thing that, the story around this that has shaped who I am is Ash, my wife had struggled with an eating disorder right after we got married. And, um, and it was kind of managed somewhat well when we lived in Bakersfield and then when we moved to Santa Barbara. And then when we moved to San Francisco, the pressure of you know, starting a church and the pressure of everything that we went through exposed this, um, this disorder that she struggled with for a lot of her life. And it became to where it, to put it the way I would say it is it tested my vows. Like I, I honestly came to the point where I'm like, I don't know if I can be, if we can be married anymore. This is destroying me. You're not, we're not, we're not relating. I don't even know who you are. When was, when was this? This was uh, 2000 and like 16, 15, like 14, 15, 16 around, around there where it got really, really, really bad. And so this is 14 years into marriage and yeah. how many years together? Uh, seven years plus. Wow, so so like 20 plus years yeah. together. Yeah. And here's the strange thing about being a pastor is that your whole life is wrapped up your whole, everything is interconnected, right? So if my marriage was gonna end, so was my job. You know, it's not like I was a banker. And I'm like, oh, my marriage ended. I could still do my job as a banker. How come? Like, why, why well, would it mean the end of your job? Well, being a pastor, like you, if, you, if your marriage falls apart, I mean, it's a pretty, you, you're pretty much, it's hard to come back from that. Because people are like, if you can't stay married, uh, to your to your spouse and and hold your family together, can you pastor a church? Right. If you can't if you can't see that vow through, then yeah. then is there another shoe that's going to drop with your commitment to the church? Yeah. So so it was like it was like I felt stuck. Like I can't uh, every. Uh, to be, I mean, completely honest. This is the honesty podcast, right? It, yeah. It I is, like, and I'm I'm appreciating every every ounce of it so far yeah so it was like um it felt like every ounce of me that didn't want to keep going forward it felt if it, it was it was really really hard we're both in therapy um we're both very open about just this these struggles that she's had and this disorder and um i felt like at a certain point like i think we're i can't i can't move forward but then i'm like if I leave, then I leave it all. And I got to the point where I was, I was honestly ready to leave it all. Like, okay, I'm leaving the marriage, the job, all of it. Like, um, because this eating disorder is just destroying my wife and me and everything. I just can't stand by. I just can't do this anymore. And so it was that kind of discussion. Then she had a, her, her, one of her closest friends, her and I were like, there has to be an intervention of some sort, meaning two people that she loves and respects say say the same thing in the same time, not not together. We weren't together when we did it. I said it, she said it. And that was the moment Ash woke up. Like 
her her friend said, Dave is going to leave you. And I think by him staying, he's enabling you because you think he'll never leave you. You can do anything you want because you know that, you know, you know, he's, he can't leave. You know, it. you know, he's completely, this is every, like your marriage is like the foundation of his career is he knows that. So, but I've, and her friends that I've counseled him, I've told him, he, you, you'd really need to like tell her that you're going to leave if you, she doesn't go to a program. And then that was what really woke her up. And then I said the same thing, like, Ashley, you have to go to a program. Um, and all of that was interlaced, like love. I, I deeply loved her and I didn't even know who she was anymore. This, this you know, the eating disorders, like any addiction, they ravage a person, they take over a person and then they just, just, they eat them alive from the inside out, which is a ironic way of talking about eating disorder. It eats you alive. It literally does. And, um, how and, so do you mind? Well, it, it helping me helping walk through. Well, you know, if an eating disorder takes like whatever it does to the, the body, it does to the soul, like emaciate, like Ash was emaciated, like not just physically, um, but emotionally, um, spiritually, the soul was gone. Like her soul was gone. And, um, and it was sad. It when was you, really sad. When you look back on, on that and that articulation, of of potentially enabling it or enabling it if you feel like that was a that was a contributing factor what what would you have told yourself like what were the ways that you were enabling that now you look back and say man i could have changed that behavior or could have done it differently um yeah i enabled it through codependency i was and i think this fall falls into i was coming awake to my codependency at the same time, I was coming awake to my family of origin. They were really connected because my codependency was like, I'd go in and like, cash, I want to help you make the structure of changing everything. And then I would like the next day go, you know, I love you. It's okay. You can do what you want. Like, it's just like, mm. I, I came to the point where I needed her to be, I knew I needed her to be sick in a sick way. It was just, it's just codependent, like completely codependent. Wow. Mm. And, um, what what benefit to you um just to to outline it what benefit was it to you for her to keeping her happy sick keeping her happy like you're sick and you staying sick seems to somehow make you happy even though you're not happy mm. but i don't i don't want to be the one that removes this this thing from you mm. the way that when she went through recovery she called it they call it in recovery eating disorder is like an abusive, abusive relationship that you keep going back to. And that's, she had that with this eating disorder. And I almost didn't want to take that from her in a weird way, looking back. Um, as, um, as real, I, you know, it's really, again, thank you so much for sharing this. This is why the podcast exists because I think it's, there are people, out there that will go through something like this and just be so thankful that someone is articulating this experience. Do you think your first story of pain avoidance was a big factor in 20 plus years? And and maybe it was only part of that time that, that um, Ashley may have had this eating disorder, but you just wanted to avoid it and yeah. just 
in the short term, let's just be happy and get through it. Not knowing in the long term, like the coffee yeah. consumption, totally, it's it's destroying from the inside out. Yeah, this is my this was the life script that I I lived out of, like pain avoided. So a lot of it was codependence. Let's not let's to, for Ash to go through any sort of real recovery would cause us too much pain in our marriage. Um, people would know about it from the church. How would the church respond to us? That sort of thing. All of it. You know? Can I just say, I feel like Ash is like the rock that the church is built on. Like, I yeah, feel like she's amazing. Yes. It, I, like, I think it's just, uh, if it hasn't happened yet, maybe it's one of the Sundays I've missed, but I feel like it's just a coming, it's an inevitable uh, moment that she's going to come out on stage. I mean, just outpouring of love. Yeah. Because she of is so- an incredible, and that's the thing, like, that's what was the hardest part. Like, she's so incredible that this was eating her life where she wasn't showing up to her own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and this wasn't, this wasn't stretched out over, this was like, it got really serious for about three years, a three-year stretch where it was like horrific. Um, that, le- I mean, we went through marriage counseling together and we were trying to make it work and then we just like we knew that what we had to deal with was her was this disorder um so this story ends with her finally going to two different programs starting her program off by saying yeah what are your goals why are you here and she said i want to have a child so one of the the reason why we couldn't have children is because because of her eating disorder she had lost her menstrual cycle and couldn't ovulate She'd ovulate for uh, 15 years or something like that. So, um, so that that happened, and that was what what she went to to her program for. And it took um, that I think a nine month program. She graduated, and she was her like I was I got my wife back. It was it was incredible. One of the things that. Um, this is and this is how I counteract counteract, I don't know if that's the right word. I buffer myself from my from my proclivities. So if I have a proclivity like I like new things, I like um I like uh I'm an enthusiast, what's the next thing? Um, all this stuff. The way I try to buffer it is like I believe in commitments and to have to face Ash and say, if we don't get help, and if you don't get help, I don't know if I can keep this commitment to you. I mean, she's, I've been with her for 20 something years. I mean, for someone who loves new things, like she's the only woman like I'll ever, I'll ever love. And, and to say that, like, this is really hard and I don't know if I can keep my commitment here was like the bottom, like for me, bottoming out. Um, but it was the commitment that caused me. It's like the vow I made to her caused me to go. And if you, if we get help, if you get help, if I get help, we can move forward. But I just, the last thing I want to do is like, is to leave this commitment. Um, I, I really believe that commitments make us into the people that we are, we're just supposed to become. It's commitments. It's not endless options for me. It's like mm. f- committing. So it's like the banks of a of a river. Yeah, creating a river rather than just a 
yeah. a spill field of water that that's right drenches the ground. So it was our our commitment to each other that, and her commitment to me that brought her into this program finally, and then graduated, restored her weight, and then it took about another year and a half, where uh, all of a sudden one day she out of the blue she ovulated and we didn't even know it until she like did some blood tests or something and one level was like off the charts and she called her doctor like why is this level so high and he was all oh, you ovulated she's like wait what i ovulated i didn't i didn't do anything to ovulate and he goes i don't i don't know that's just what that's what the numbers say because you guys should try to get pregnant and this was like the first time this has ever happened like naturally we could try to get pregnant and this was her intention from that first day, that first day of the program, but yeah. it it wasn't like tracked each week or, or no. something like that. It was just no. It was at the well, when she graduated, it was. But then after like a year, like we just or even less than that, you just kind of didn't track it as much anymore. And then, um, and then they said you can try now to get pregnant, and so. We did that next month and we got pregnant and our baby girl juniper is five months old and she's like the most amazing thing in the world ash and i are living literally like a life where we're like we wake up we're going why do we get to get live this life this life is so insanely good how how do we get to live this life you know that sort of thing but it came out of the thing that shaped me from this story was like facing her. I, both of us always having to do the work of facing our shadow side. The thing that like she loves healthy eating. She loves working out. She loves, and it's, and also it's the shadow side that can lead into body image stuff and eating disorder stuff and trigger stuff and all that thing. And the temper of the shadow side always um, it, for both to of us. Totally. It's uh people, Friends of mine ask me why the, why I'm so productive or, or why I think I'm uh, you know why I'm able to I guess be somewhat creative in different realms and 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 I think there is that there are two answers that are above the line and the below the line the below the line answer is I think my own childhood had uh, a fear of of abandonment that uh, I chat about a little bit with a, uh, with another podcast guest but but as the youngest of of five like I think the the outward appearance and this is just this is the mistake we all make as humans is you know we look at the leaves instead of the roots mm -hmm. and the leaves are like okay uh, angel investing and podcasting and uh, and uh, startups and founder but really the roots are the youngest of five and and a share of uh, a pretty uh, erratic um, childhood, so much love, but a similarly mm -hmm. erratic childhood, and the youngest of five. I don't. I I think it was just wired in my brain that I can only hang out if I'm valuable to the group, mm -hmm. and you know, parents can can uh, be in their best selves, very uh, unconditional. But your six year old sibling is not going to give you unconditional love. It's going to be mm -hmm. very conditional. Mm -hmm. Eight year old sibling, twelve year old sibling, fourteen year old sibling. So. Uh, that but that that shadow is where so much of this comes from, to where eating right, exercising, 
those things can seem really, really healthy and, and, but that's the leaves instead of the roots for, mm -hmm. for many of us. Yeah. Keeping that. I think a lot of it comes from also like self-awareness, spending the time to be self-aware what's going on. You say below the line, under the surface, like what's going on under the surface or below the line of your life. What are you operating out of? What's this coming from? You know, I do that whenever like there's anger there that I can't deal with, or there's overwhelming ecstasy somewhere. Like I, I, I am always like, where, where's that? Where's that coming from? Where's that? And is there any part of it that needs to be checked or tempered or whatever? Mm -hmm. Doing doing that work daily um, through, you know, there's spiritual practices like the the daily examine. Um, the prayer of examine that's really helpful. What is what is that? Prayer of examine is a um, it is an Ignatian practice that I'll, I think it's Ignatian practice that is um, that allows you to daily examine your heart and invite God into every like a conscious awareness of every every moment of the day. So ending the day with like a prayer of illumination inviting God to like show you where you're at today and where he was at today. And if there's any ways that we're like incongruent with the life that, um, that we're to live in, in God. Um, and then to just acknowledge the incongruency and then to invite God to forgive us and then to fill us with the spirit so that we can live fully, kind of present to him and to his world the next day, you know, that sort of thing mm -hmm. and allows you to go where, that anger. Where's that anger? And the whole point isn't the nation. This practice isn't to check a box. It's to hopefully one day you don't need the practice where you're doing it every moment. Mm -hmm. Something comes up and you're moving to like, where's this coming from? Where's God in this? Where am I in this? Where's my body at? Where's my mind at? Why, why can't I let this anger go? Why am I mounting a defense? Right. Why can't I let this go? What's what is underneath there? That sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Toyota has this uh, this practice called the five whys, where they mm. just ask if something goes wrong. Let's say there's a recall that costs the company, I don't know, three hundred fifty million dollars. That you have to go five whys to get to the real root of it. Mm. And you know, it's like, well, this whatever uh, piece of material was was faulty from this vendor. Well, why was it faulty? And why did we use that vendor? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we used it because it was this cost cutting. Okay, well, why? why? You ask it five five layers deep and you get to the real reason being. Um, the expectation setting we, we made in 2016, uh, that was 30% over our capacity, um, set up this this house of cards for us. Mm -hmm. And and then it allows you to, you ask those five whys and you it almost invariably brings you back to to where you can take responsibility. Yeah. Of oh, we did this. Yep. It wasn't this vendor that was uh, that just messed up on their part. It's yeah. like, oh, we caused this. Yeah. These are the these are the things that my wife and I talk about a lot. It's like, how do we contribute? How did we contribute to whatever happened in our marriage or whatever incident that we're arguing through that day, you know, or wrestling mm -hmm. through or whatever, you know? Like it's not just that thing. It's like how do we contribute? How do we show up to that thing? You know, I think that is a very human, our responsibility is so important, owning and taking responsibility. I feel like, you know, our sometimes, most of human reactions is defensiveness, right? The first thing is I didn't do it. You know, it's like as old as the beginning of the Bible, 
Like right. I, I didn't, like the woman, the woman that you gave me, I didn't ask for this woman. I mean, like whatever, you know, where'd the snake come from? That sort of thing, you know? Yeah. It's like that, that human reaction. I'm quoting the Bible, by the way, the beginning of yeah. Genesis, so yeah. people don't know. Um, that is like a thing. And then taking, I think part of the way that we live into uh, our, what God is getting us to do always is like take understanding our contribution and responsibility that we are responsible beings that that can be responsible and like owning what we've done and then being a part of making it right yeah there's an adage uh in any scenario there's 200 percent responsibility to go around mm -hmm. and yeah. and our idea is that it's a hundred percent and how can you take you know even if it's 90 percent, then you can create a story of how that 10 percent that was someone else's fault was it part, you know started a chain reaction but if there's 200 percent to go around also ties into uh, one of my other favorite books, 15 Commandments of Conscious Leadership, The First Rule. This was also in Diana Chapman's uh, episode, I think episode 13 or 14. She, uh, the first rule is just take 100% responsibility. Mm -hmm. I mean, it literally could be a tornado knocks out a factory. How can you take 100? You can't learn anything um, by only externalizing scenarios. Um, and and yet in, all, in almost every scenario those five whys can can be a path there or just like you're saying observing mm -hmm. and asking that that having that curiosity and and um commitment to seeing okay where did i contribute to this yeah and i think too sometimes what gets in the way of us doing that is like when we take responsibility we feel like bad people like identity is a huge part of it mm -hmm. like well if i take responsibility for that that means i'm a bad person and then detaching our identity from it is like really hard. Right. Like, yeah, I I um, made that mistake. That doesn't make me a horrible person. That makes me human, and I can own uh, my my contribution. And it doesn't it doesn't rock my identity. Right. Well, and that's yeah, that's a power. That's the a really powerful part of of what you were saying of of acknowledging your shadow is is acknowledging that we are both good and bad and it's it is um or the tendencies are there or, or whichever articulation just creates this this uh place to be both or the space to be both like it is i think one of the most formative things that that uh one of the most powerful things that that i try to do in this vein is is literally sit there think about how to die how can I take 100% responsibility? How could I? How did I contribute to this? And part of that, you know, and going deeper to the roots is, is the shadow of recognizing I have some really dark parts of me, mm -hmm. and and yeah, well, I, 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 I wonder why we feel the need to package us up as either good or bad, or or everyone else as good or bad, rather than the uh, space for both. Yeah, um, but it is certainly. I think uh, um, for me, in my experience, really powerful to recognize no matter how horrible, I mean, below the line, like 100% candor, I can create scenarios where I can put myself on the wrong side of history in the most awful, horrible places. Mm -hmm. um, I could create scenarios creatively in my mind in 30 seconds where I could be a Nazi. Mm -hmm. Like that's how crazy um, 
And I would have never been able to articulate that in my head or let my imagination go there five years ago, 10 years ago. But I could, like, I could walk you through the scenario where um, my desire to fit in leads me down a path of, of going to a meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, my desire for pain avoidance leads me down a path of thinking about 95% of this ideology in one way and lo- losing the other 5%. That's kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. My uh, imaginative path could take me to uh, to where, oh, this there is this story that I could easily believe that they are encroaching other people. The other is not part of us and they're encroaching on our livelihood. You can create a world, you know, where it is like, okay, there is this meme that my whole community believes that there is scarcity, there isn't enough for everyone. And I've got to look out for my family. Mm-hmm. And I've got to look out for my extended family, mm-hmm. my community that now my identity is wrapped up into. And this is this is pretty, uh, this is about as dark as I've gone in, in, the, in the podcast, but that's part of integrating the shadow is go to the darkest places that that you can go to recognize holy crap i can i can go there yeah and and then zooming out and realizing yeah it is uh, if i'm capable of that what other maliciousness am i capable of without asking without reflection yeah and contemplation on yeah i think of what's happening you know being a being a christian minister i think that Christianity has a lot of those resources um, and not ex- ex- uh, Christianity doesn't exclusively have these resources built into it, but I think Christianity has these resources built into it very well, where you could talk about one, the fallenness of, of, of humanity, that every single person is a fallen being and is capable of very, very heinous sin. And at the same time, we are created in God's image and are are um, are so loved by God that um, that God Himself would would come to redeem us with His own with His own self, hmm. the God self, right? Would come to redeem us. And I think you you have both those. Like I'm I'm both deeply flawed and deeply loved at the same time, you know. I believe that is a very important part of like seeing life rightly that you are mm-hmm. capable of like what you said, like super heinous things. I was thinking about this recently was quoting um, uh, Martin Luther King's um, letter, uh, a letter in Birmingham jail. And the when he was in jail, um, five white pastors in Birmingham wrote an open letter to him in the paper saying, you know, please leave. And it was very sensible, very respectable letter. Like we'll handle this. You know, I appealed to you as we appealed to you as other, other pastors leave. And Martin Luther King, I mean, his letter is incredible. And he uh, basically says, you know, I'm, we're, I'm really tired of, of, um, of, of the white, community continuing to say, you know, uh, we will preach the gospel, preach the gospel, preach the gospel, but 
but don't deal with this, the system of oppression that that's there. And I share that story because we won't even name the problem. Won't even. Yeah. And I, I share that story because as I reflect on that, like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not white, but I can, I can see myself in Birmingham in that time being, um, Latino and being accepted in the white culture and not, not saying anything at all, just kind of going with it, going, yeah, let us handle it. Mm-hmm. You know, Dr. King, let us handle it. We, I can see myself doing that. I don't want to be on that side of history, but I can see myself doing that. I can see like in my own heart, like, is there a place for that? Yeah. And is there a place for me to go? No, this is wrong. I'm going to call out the complicity here. Right. Yeah, both. I can see it both. There's a, a another book called the uh, the Courage to Be Disliked that's come up on the podcast before, and uh, the willingness to be misunderstood is one thing, but the courage and that founders all need that to where you're you're willing to be misunderstood. People don't understand yeah. why you're working on this really important thing when almost by definition it it doesn't seem that important to the rest of the world, but it does to you. But a whole nother level is is. Uh, the courage to be disliked, where it is, for many of us, at least for for me, wired to fear abandonment means mm-hmm. that I need constant feedback loops that I'm liked. Yeah, and that seems so innocuous, like mm-hmm. oh, courage to be, uh, or uh, you know, wanting to be liked. That is an equation for extremely malicious and or at the worst or best case ignorant behavior of of like well the community says this is the right direction and it requires so much courage uh to to your uh scenario to say you know what i'm actually going to part ways with uh with this other community of pastors my livelihood yeah in many ways uh and in stand on this side of yeah of the equation yeah and i think it takes incredible integration for that to happen too because what you're doing, what you're saying is that I can be, I could be my own person that has my own convictions and not have to go with and respectfully disagree with someone and say, I don't agree with you and I still can love you and I still can serve you, but I don't agree with you. And if you don't like me, I'm okay with that. It takes a lot of integration. That's that's a that's a that's hard work to get to. It takes it takes some time to get to. But that's what you that's what you're hoping for. You're hoping for like a buoyancy of right. character to go. I can actually, I can I can take this if people don't don't like me. But I ha- I, I will stand on my convictions. Well, it's yeah. It's so I for 32 years of my life, I probably would have said, you put me on any scenario in in human history and. Yeah, obviously I'd be on the right side. So rational. Yeah. Until I got to a point in life where I, where I was like, you know, what that is so unlikely. Yeah. So unlikely. And uh to your point, how do I spend years cultivating the the muscle to maybe when I'm 40, when I'm 45, I would have the courage to be on the right side because anyone that tells you like Oh yeah, back then I would have totally uh, in 1701 I would have totally been on the side of of abolishing slavery. That is a that is a a white male capable liked 
um, that has had 30 plus once they're in a position to actually have a voice and mm -hmm. and a position of influence the amount of training that and and kind of formation to get to that place of influence talk about what got you here won't get you there mm -hmm. you almost have compromised every ability every muscle that it it would then require for you to switch 180 um to to actually have that to have that position i mean it's just again this is uh obviously dicey topic but I, anyone or at least i would have at 29 at 24 at 16 it would have been so obvious that's the side of history i would have been on yeah but but yeah it's um so the uh okay so juniper <laughs> five months old yeah i and yeah i mean just to 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 tie that off i would just say i think it's really important to understand um i think it's really important to choose a um like a uh a coherent philosophy. You and I talk about philosophy. I've heard you talk about it on this podcast. A coherent philosophy. Um, I think that's a really important thing because if the goal, I don't, and I don't know, this, this could be even controversial. I don't know if the goal is ever to be on the right side of history because history is a strange thing. Like mm. you never know like what history is going to do. We don't, we just don't know. I heard uh, Aziz, I'm sorry. I, I didn't, he has a Netflix special coming out. Um, and I had a friend of mine go to his show. Um, and uh, he was telling me about it. He's like, his whole thing is on on this topic. I think it comes mm -hmm. out in a couple of weeks. His whole thing is, and I, again, I, I'm just, this is secondhand, so I don't know. I haven't seen it. And he talks about how like, we, do, we just don't know what history is going to do. He, I think he uses an example of San Francisco homelessness. What if like, homelessness is eradicated in 50 years? And there's a, there's, or yeah, say, say 30 years or whatever. And because of all the street cameras that we have and everything, there's a footage of you passing a homeless person and it's given them like a shrewd look, like a look like, uh, and, but because homelessness is completely eradicated, that is like the most inhumane thing mm. in the entire world. And now, now you're on the wrong side mm. because we just don't, you just don't. No, I think it was a really good. And I love comedians because we've talked about this. Yeah. They're able to deal with like prophetic stuff, like truth in a funny way. But like, oh, dang, get you thinking like, like, mm. you know, like Chappelle does. Um, I think that was, I think, I don't know if the goal is to be on the right side of history. I think the goal is to live by my, well, this is my goal, is to live by a coherent philosophy. And my philosophy is the, the Jesus' philosophy, um, his way of life, his way of living. Um, How would and I you want to articulate that further. I think his way of living is the best understood through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five, six, and seven. Um, and I think the way that the things he teaches us to practice there, and how to live and how to see the world, and then um, and then if I zoom out through the Gospels, and then if I zoom out a little further through the Epistles, and then if I zoom out a little further, like the canon, like the entire Bible, but. Um, and what about the Sermon on the Mount? The if listeners on the Mount. have never have never heard it. What about that as an ideal? Uh, is, is do you think is valuable to your life and and obviously it's your life's work to, to others? Well, I think it's um, in in the way he Jesus teaches about what is truly important on how we 
he, he, the, the Sermon on the Mount starts with, you have heard it said, but I say to you, like, there's some things that you've, you've read in the law and you've interpreted in your, in your law. And I've, I've kind of tell you like the, the true way to live. And he uses a few examples, like, um, you heard it said, you know, do not, do not murder. But I say like anger is just, it's just the same thing. It's like an issue of your heart. And, um, you, you've heard it said, don't, don't commit adultery. It was actually about lust. And, um, I actually want to rid you of this, like lust for life that you, that you go after that, that causes you to objectify people and, and, um, take something from them that you can never get back. Um, so Jesus goes deeper into that. And then he tells us to build his, your entire life on his teachings, like his philosophy, really. I think Christianity was first and foremost, a philosophy, a way of living, way of seeing the world and way of living. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, just, you know, he just a parable. There's just two people that build a house. One built on the sand and one built on a rock. And then all this, the storm happened and the house that was built on the sand eroded and fell into the sea. But the one that was on the rock survived the storm. He goes, if you, if you take my words and put them into practice, you're like the person who built your life on a, on a rock. I think he's, he's given us a philosophy, like take his teachings and his way of life and build your entire life on it. So that's my, I, I think people need to find a coherent philosophy that you're going to build your life on. Picking and choosing different philosophies, ultimately you're the philosopher then. I think there's danger in that. Yeah. You know? Well, the, um, Peter Thiel, who's obviously, uh, who's, uh, widely known, read, studied, listened to, um, here in the Bay Area, one founder <laughs> recently told me um, that he wanted to read uh, his book Zero to One a thousand times, and um, and he wanted to do that over ten years. One of the smartest thinkers in in technology, entrepreneurship, investing in the world, hands down, mm -hmm. and uh, and he is. Uh, I don't know if he would call himself a Christian, but I think he he mm -hmm. is from the sense of. He, um, when asked if he is a Christian, his, his answer is, well, I believe that uh, we as, as humans have to pick ideals. Mm -hmm. And if we don't pick ideals, um, then they'll be chosen for us or we'll, they'll be unconsciously chosen. And, um, and this is, you know, he was an undergrad, I, think, I believe it was a philosophy major undergrad. And so uh, out of all of his ideals, he chose Jesus. Um, and this is not a this is not a pro uh, Christianity uh, episode or podcast. It is just it is what it, it is, and this brings up a great um, a great uh, thought that you're talking about of of choosing your life's philosophy. He chose instead of a life's philosophy, he just chose an individual that he felt like had mm -hmm. the highest ideal of of philosophy. And this individual would go on to describe. Um, Jesus as this individual who, as an ideal, as a capital M myth, is God choosing to come down, be man, go through the most painful, mm -hmm. horrific way to die. Like it's, you know, we all hear this cartoon version um, of, of Christianity so much that we forget the, you know, the story. And, uh, you know, it's, it is living penniless, uh, but virtuous, um, being completely, uh, just 
abandoned by his closest followers, or at least uh, one of his closest followers, going through uh, incredible embarrassment, um, ridicule, torture, like the most pain, like you couldn't outline, at least in Peter Thiel's articulation, you could not outline a more horrific way to go. And yet he's doing it not even for him and has a chance to escape mm-hmm. and decides to actually just go head on through it for in in the capital M mythologies uh uh you know sense for everybody else's redemption mm-hmm. and salvation like that is it's one of the most profound ways I've heard it articulated by someone that would probably even question whether you'd call himself uh, a Christian um but just said I at 22 had a chance to pick an ideal from any yeah. number of stories and chose that one um and and it's a uh profound yeah. articulation of why uh it is is helpful to choose something and, uh yeah other, and I th- other than I th- yourself to i think yeah i think ideal. it's yeah two things i'd say you know getting back to the right side of history thing like choosing a philosophy to commit to and then um i'd also say as a pastor why i love the we come we make the jesus philosophy very complex right very very complex um where i think the practice of it even the sermon on the mount boils down to like three things that jesus assumes that we will do in practicing his way is when you when you fast when you pray and when you give alms to the poor those are three things like he just assumes that you're going to do in a sermon on the mount like he boils it down i remember asking one of the like the the most probably the biggest um uh most prominent new testament scholar in the world alive right now we were having and he's a fellow enneagram seven as well um what's his name his name is nt wright mm-hmm. um and uh i mean his name is not into his name is tom Wright, but he he writes under nt Wright, and um we were we were hanging out and having a meal in san francisco walking around i'm like if you were to boil down christianity to like three things what would it be and he's like he basically boiled it down to these three things that jesus did like he he said prayer um and what about prayer just a more um color on on each one prayer would be like a a connectivity to god a practiced connectivity to god um practicing something that's real because in the in in the way of jesus jesus at the end of john 15 16 17 talks about how he's come to make us one with god that's why he's there prayer is a way that we practice oneness with god jesus in the sermon on the mount gives a model prayer the lord's prayer that's pretty popular right uh, father in heaven hallowed be thy name. that that's the lord's prayer practicing Oneness. And by the way, people can read the Sermon on the Mountain three minutes. Yeah, uh, yeah, like it's seven minutes. Yeah, okay. five, three, five, 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 a few minutes. A few minutes. Yeah, not long. And you can get more from that that sermon than the average person in uh, in um, you know in Israel and, and Jerusalem back then because you can read the whole thing. Yeah, um, it's not. Would I would I love that you're touching on? Um, is that it, it? It is so often complicated and convoluted. Into there's 800 pages of the Bible you need to read, mm-hmm. um, but uh, there's obviously 
5,000 people heard this sermon, sermon on the Mount with absolutely no other context other than what they were hearing. And they knew what was, yeah. Yeah. And then fasting, that is just one of the ways that we, again, getting back to the whole, our stomach ailments and the things that we like, it's a way that we connect our spirituality to our body. So fasting is a way where we um, are able to live into the discipline of prayer with our bodies. Um, fasting food teaches us how to keep our bodies in submission to our spirit because oftentimes they're not integrated. Mm. Um, we kind of like go after our cravings far too often. Right. It just teaches us to embody a spirituality. How do you fast? By the way, you were mentioning that you Yeah, I do fast. Right now it's a, a, like a weekly fast from dinner to dinner. It's not an intense fast at all, but it's a weekly one where um, I'm trying to, in my body, just remember that uh, I actually could live, un my body can live under submission to, the, to my will, not the other way around. What what times or what day do you do? That? Uh, Wednesdays typically. So Wednesday till Thursday dinner. Uh, no, Tuesday to Wednesday. Tuesday dinner. So yeah. Okay. So That's fasting. Fasting and then giving to the poor. I think this is so big in San Francisco. I know people listen to this probably from all over the place, but San Francisco has a huge homeless problem. And I think homelessness in San Francisco. One of the questions that you said you want to ask, like, what do you think about when you're just like musing i've been thinking about the homeless a lot and um san francisco has more mental capital and more money than almost any other place on earth like concentrated in the history of the earth of history and we can't we can't even touch it it's actually growing we can't touch homelessness we we can't figure out how to do it and it's it's and I, I believe that um, the poor are a prophetic witness that your human capacity has limits. And I think we should solve homelessness for sure. And I think we should first and foremost remember the poor, meaning you can't, you can't solve everything. San Francisco, you're smart, but you can't, you're not God. You can't solve it all, but you can remember them. You can give them dignity by looking them in the eye when you don't have any cash on you. Say, I'm sorry, I don't have any, I don't have any cash. Or um, like my wife and I, we try to build my rhythms to remember the poor. Yeah, you, I remember you saying it in one of your sermons recently. Well, what do you, you, you have a ritual of, of, of some sort um, on Saturdays or I think maybe. Yeah, we, it, 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 it kind of ebbs and flows this, when we, when we, 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 we Sabbath on Saturdays, we turn our phones off, walk long, kind of like to take the long, slow walks and um, do other things. But one of the things we do is we're really intentional about our, when, our, when we're walking to build in time to, sp to like spend time with the poor. So if there are people that are, you know, either panhandling or, asking for something, we'll just always make sure that we spend time. And we take a certain amount of money out every month to keep on our wallets, just to give away if anyone asks sort of thing. And um, and we, we, we make sure that we're making eye contact. We ask them how they're doing, their name, you know? And if it turns into like, is there anything we can do for you? 
slice of pizza, lemonade, meal, something, anything. Sometimes I'll say, do you have like a few bucks? I'm like, sure, we have a few bucks. Some people ask for meals, some people ask for lemonade, whatever, right? So we'll just get to know them, well, pray for them. I know with um, something that I that I talk uh, quite a bit about, actually, ironically, not so much on this podcast, but outside the podcast, is uh, mental health awareness and mental illness awareness. And um, the research shows that just listening, so one out of five people will deal with a mental illness experience this year um, and basically every year, and depression and anxiety being the two most common forms. So that's one out of five people. It's extremely common. Wow. And one of the hardest parts about going through a mental illness experience is the isolating feeling of feeling like you are alone. You can't talk about it. And one of the most profound things that you can do if you're one of the four other people, whether it's a family member, friend, loved one, spouse, one of the biggest things that you can do, the research shows just listening to them, yeah, acknowledging it openly that it is a very common experience. Yeah, destigmatizing the ability to talk about totally. it can decrease the uh, the symptoms up to fifty percent. Yeah, it's so true. You don't have to have a solution. You don't have to fix. Like yeah. your solution is just listening. Yeah, and I think that that is what that is so important. I feel like sometimes any, anyone can anyone do, it. do it. It's and it's not going to solve it. You know, a hundred percent, but. You have in your power at any moment, in any day, anyone. You don't have to be a doctor. You don't have to read a book. It's just listening. Listen, yeah. Yeah. Listening, eye contact, dignity. I see you. Is there anything I can do? That sort of thing. Mm. I think we just have this burden of like, I have to solve it all the time. If I can't solve it, it gets overwhelming to me. Um, so That's interesting. Yeah, you had the phrase of remember. Yeah, remember. That's Jesus, remember. you know. Um, give alms and in the New Testament over and over again, remember the poor, remember the poor. And then um, we do once a month, we set aside a day. To, yeah, it sounds to, like we have to do that. San Francisco has so many, so many opportunities uh, to remember the poor opportunities, but also so many um, Christ-like followers, at least from those three examples of People yeah. that meditate and contemplate. Yeah. Aristotle has a quote of uh, the goal of action is contemplation. Mm -hmm. And and it's, you know, Aristotle would think through all of the animals have purpose. What is a human's purpose? Yeah. And and if you're at the top of the food chain, your purpose can't just be to consume. What is the purpose? And it's contemplation. Mm. And and you have just this this craze. And, and Do you think he meant by that, like, in everything you do, uh, be intentional and contemplative? And everything you do, or to actually sit and meditate, or both. I, I imagine it, was, it would be both. Um, I mean, meditation in general. You know, and I mentioned this on the podcast every once in a while as well. That it's, it's as it's a term as broad as the term sports. Mm -hmm. like, meditation is not this specific thing of like sitting down, lotus style, repeating a, a mantra. That is a version, but uh, and I, I'm sure you know this know this well. But it is just um, it is a it is as broad of a term as as mm -hmm. uh, as contemplation, and so yeah. um, I think any and all styles can be beneficial. But I th I think what what he's saying is is that the goal of life, um, I at least what is counterintuitive, is not the right action. It is acting then contemplating. Yeah, and that contemplation is the guide towards 
kind of chicken and egg, what comes first? Well, the contemplation probably comes first towards yeah. right action, which is a, you know, a Buddhist concept, rather than the right action first and then contemplation yeah. afterwards. So where's the source of 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 right action, of yeah. of the selection of actions in the right direction? Yeah. The source is probably contemplation. Were and you and the I, source of that is probably the wrong action or a bunch of action yeah. and then contemplatively thinking, well, what should I do next? Maybe it was, I may, it might've been you and I talking about this. I was talking about this with someone like the first step in changing your behavior is doing the, is not to change your behavior, but doing your behavior with mindfulness. So you're consciously doing your behavior. So if it's like, you know, I, I use, I, I'll use a pretty extreme example. Like if I'm, if someone's addicted to pornography, the, the idea is like, stop doing pornography or stop using pornography. Um, it's like, do it mindfully on what you're doing consciously. Right. And that's actually how you start to change your, to change your behavior. If you're like, I'm, I can't stop drinking and black, getting blackout drunk, whatever it is, do it mindfully first. Don't just change your behavior. Like what? Right. I think that's what you're kind of getting we, at. We haven't, it. yeah, we haven't chatted about it, but yeah, they, you know, they, I've heard it said a slightly different way that the best way to kick addiction is to write down a date that you want to quit by. Mm -hmm. And it is okay if it takes you 14 times in five years of, of getting that date wrong. But just by putting down that date, it, I think it triggers exactly what you're saying yeah. this contemplation of, okay, what am I doing? I put the, I want to quit smoking by the 27th and it's yeah. the 15th. Yeah. Most people and, do this stuff. My, you, tend to do it mindlessly just a habit you fall into it yeah but doing it mindfully maybe that's what you said aristotle said that yeah, uh, yeah. the goal of, of action is contemplation and the um and uh and a number of of other great thinkers have have said it uh similarly or with slight tweaks but i think what um what is interesting about the outline that you're giving well two things that come to mind one is the outline of the the Sermon on the Mount, and by the way, I I all I don't know if I label myself as Christian, by the way, um, and I don't I don't think that's good or a bad thing. Um, I just I look at the way that we package things up, and it's it's really for the audience uh, or the other person to package, buy, sell, transact. Um, and and I just don't want to be bought, sold, transacted, and so I, I don't know if I uh, if I use that. I don't, I don't have a strong proclivity to not use um, that label, um, but I attend your services uh, with my family every Sunday, and, and uh, really, really find so much value in them. And um, but the the thing that you're kind of walking through with the Sermon on the Mount that's really interesting is. Um, and words are so clumsy, but you can do a little bit of a interesting observation and saying, okay, there's prayer and union with God. There is fasting and uh, mind over body. Um, or uh, in Vedanta, the philosophy that is the source behind Hinduism and then Hinduism being the source behind uh, Buddhism. In Vedanta, it would just be the intellect over the body. And it's so similar, just fasting being a, a practical um, repetition of mind or intellect over body. And then third, alms, remembering the poor. Um, and those three things in, in this just 
new wave of, of self-help is like meditation, intermittent fasting, and, uh, and then remembering the poor would just be compassion or, you know, it's a, uh, you know, generosity or social entrepreneurship or having a mission behind your company. Mm-hmm. Like there are all of these things that, that, uh, are just different articulations that are so Silicon Valley is replete with these articulations, but they'll never, they'll never go to, to a uh, source of like the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think I find all that stuff and that I've have found this stuff ministering in the Bay area. So fascinating. San Francisco is such a spiritual place. And I've used, I've found that to be a very, hospitable place for the gospel like the gospel of jesus um and the church that we started because i think that when i start to connect those dots like what you're i would do it in a different i would do the opposite way that you just did that so you just so but that just the i'm a minister i'm a pastor that's what i do like i'd say you know how you do you know mindfulness and you know how you do meditation and um you know how you're doing intermittent fasting you know how you're doing like mission you're what you're really after like the the longing the thing under the thing is like you like is what jesus taught here like how to stay connected with god Mm -hmm. like you're you have this deeper longing than that thing and maybe that might not be satisfying you the way that you think it is like you have this deeper right you have a deeper longing to know jesus like i would do that that might Pastor oh, thing, my minister thing would do that. So I would point out the thing that you, that you're look that you're doing, and I'm like, there's there's something underneath that, right? That even that, it's not it's Whoa. not as satisfying. I would say, are right. you? And then I would go there. Well, and and that might be your pastoring thing. That's my, my pastoring thing. My podcasting thing <laughs> is to take what you said. That's and right. then to go even deeper into, we're very much, uh, we're wired very similarly, um, by the way, for yeah. listeners, um, would be to go even deeper than you No, Uh, but, uh, but I think the other thing that was going through my mind, um, that's quite simpatico with, with, um, what you're saying right there is, so there's this reflection or a carbon copy, to be honest, I'd say like so many of especially Eastern religion is so much of it is just psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. So much of religious uh, adherence is psychotherapy and psycho the Greek term psycho as actually it's not mind it's soul. Mm -hmm. So psychology is the study of the soul, not the study of the mind. And, and it is this, and it is, you know, below the line kind of in a below the line kind of way. It's like people are so comfortable going like 10 meters deep. And it's like, Hey, you want to be really productive be mindful or uh man intermittent fasting it's so good for body puts your body into hormesis and uses all these you know biological terms like 10 meters deep we are all good but even deeper below that it's well why do you want to be productive what Mm -hmm. is that longing Mm -hmm. that is within you that wants you to be productive or giving alms to the poor said you know maybe another way is being useful in your community where is and you see obvious need for use Mm -hmm. you have the ability to walk talk generate wealth and there are people without it that is so such an obvious place where you can be useful and it's a reminder each day 
that, you know what, I could be more useful in my community. There are people mm -hmm. that need uh, more use of me. And and it's like, go instead of 10 meters, 30 meters, 50 meters, 150 meters, 1,000 meters deep. And, and so much of religions or mythology and the capital M sense is tying to that psychotherapy or that soul therapy that is your longing for something really deep here. And you're so comfortable talking about it in terms of like the 10 meter deep, like you want to be productive or it's about energy management or mm -hmm. stress management. It's like go a thousand meters deep into your soul or your spirit. And, and where, why are you longing for this? How can you serve that even, even better? And, and I think it's um, talking about so many of the things we touch on integrating the shadow or acknowledging what's really there and psychotherapy being, you know, therapy for the, the soul or psychology, you know, it's not just like behavioral psychology. It's like, well, what is driving this behavior? That is something really deep down that isn't just your mind or your brain or your, you know, neurological pathways. Maybe there's something really deep down to why, I mean, we can talk about these things as productivity, but they're, it's like the topsoil built on three, four, 5,000 years of mythology, especially in the West, mm -hmm. 2,000 years of a Christian mythology of, of these things that, um, that get at, at what uh, can be a very, a pretty coherent uh, philosophy. And just to tie a bow on, on, on that is Peter Thiel says his ideal is, is this guy 2000 years ago, Jesus. And so much of the valley or entrepreneurship is choosing this guy saying, I want to read that book a thousand times. Mm -hmm. Why not listen to that guy, go straight to the source, at least for him, which is an ideal that is probably more coherent than, um, than, than his own philosophy. And I think, um, just to round it out, you also mentioned if you don't have that coherent philosophy to live by, then you have to be the philosopher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a tough, do you mind articulating a little bit? Well, you can talk about anything that, that, uh, that, that soliloquy just uh, opened up in your mind, but um, do you mind uh, elaborating a little bit on that alternative that you're, you speak to of, of you have to be the philosopher if you don't. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Someone else's. Yeah. I mean, just, you, you brought up, you know, suke and the soul, you know, where we get the word psychology and psycho. And I think it really ties into, you know, something Jesus said that if you want to save your life and the word uses is psyche, suke in Greek, the same mm. word, right? If you want to save your soul, you have to lose it. If you want to find it, you have to lose it. And I think getting back to what Teal is saying, I think here's someone who's reached the the top of the top and if we you know you can take someone's kind of formula and try to do their thing and that can work for a little while but then there's this deeper deeper thing i think you're touching on the longing there's some deeper thing there and i think the what the what the philosophy of jesus the way of life the jesus way does is that it teaches us all these other ways of doing it really are about turning 
turn to be about us. But the starting point of Jesus' philosophy is deny yourself, like, and then you find yourself. Like, give yourself up, and then you find it. Lose it, and you find it. And then it not doesn't become about you. He doesn't want us to lose our life. He wants us to save our, our lives, but the way we do it is this, like, upside-down, counterintuitive thing. So I think that's kind of, maybe that's what Teal's getting at. Maybe that he's like, you know, I've done all this other stuff, and I realize that at the end it turns to be about me, but what? is so attractive about Jesus. It wasn't about him. It was about, it was truly about the redemption of others. And I'm, I'll follow, I'll follow that, you know, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. And, and to ask, answer your question, when I become a philosopher, when I pick and choose, like, not, not that I don't read broadly, I try to read pretty broadly, but why I've landed on, on Jesus as like, um, the coherent philosophy that I'm like following and giving my life to as a pastor. And I say coherent philosophy only because, you know, that's the way, that's probably the most accessible way of saying it to the audience that we're talking to right now. Like, um, I, th I think Jesus is talking about a way of life. And the reason why, two reasons. One, I really believe that like Jesus showed, like showed up to me when I was 15 years old and made himself known to me. So that's, I can't deny that. Um, but the other reason is I, over and over again, I come to like, like if, I, if I'm following my own sort of philosophy or I'm like, I'm reading this person, that person, this person, I'll take a little bit of this and I'll mash together my own sort of philosophy. It's not, it, there, it doesn't, it's not coherent. I, I, I realize that I actually become the person that I'm trying to save myself with just p picking and choosing what I want to believe. And I, I tend to, just everything lines up to what I want, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I found that following Jesus, a lot of it just rubs against a lot of things I would want to naturally believe. Um, and it's a coherent, it's a coherent philosophy that I, 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 I find to be the, um, the, the, the best way to show up in the world, like true humanity. I think Jesus makes us true humans, real humans. It makes me want to ask a question around why uh, Why do you feel like it is, um, so in many ways it is like the intellectual's delight because it is so topsy-turvy, deep, counterintuitive. I mean, when you get past the, the, um, the cartoonish version, um, it, is, it is this very interesting, very like interesting metaphysical narrative um why do you why do you feel like it's so hard especially in a city like san francisco that is so spiritual why do you feel like it's anathema to when i tweet out your lectures i lose followers hmm. um sermons i lose followers not that i really care um but the um but i find it interesting mm -hmm. like i remember tweeting out a point that you talked about about listening and then i gave you a shout out uh and the the likes from just the, the the thread around listening how to be better listeners how my one of I, I think my biggest mistakes in life have come from not listening mm -hmm. and tweet out this thread that just people really love and i tweet out shout out to you or in the thread and you're just like lost uh followers 
And um, are people like deselected? They're like, why do you think it's such a struggle for for a city that is so spiritual to be open to something uh, like Christianity? I think Christianity, still at its core, is fairly exclusive, and I don't think people like that. It's not. It's open to everyone, but Jesus says there's this one way. I think that really people opt out at that point. I mean, I think they take the Jesus like Jesus as a an amazing teacher. Jesus as a um, like a really good option for a philosophy of life, taking a lot from what he said. It's a good model. But then you know you read the stuff that he said about him being the only way. Um, uh, you read the stuff about how Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and lose ourselves, take up your cross, he says, and follow him. I think that's when people just opt out, deselect, like that Christianity at that point becomes um, not something that people really want to give themselves to. That's probably um, the nice way of saying it. Probably the the not nice way of looking at it is Christianity. There's been so much horrific stuff done in the name of Jesus that people are like, that's, I don't want, I don't subscribe to that at all. I don't want to align with that. I'm not aligning with that. I mean, horrific stuff. And it's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's in our history. Like it's, the church has been, or the church of Jesus has been complicit in horrific things, both Protestant and Catholic. So, and Orthodox. So I, I mean, at that point, I mean, I can understand. I understand that. Like, I'm not, I'm not subscribing to that. Uh, that's a really cool thing. If it was a TED talk, but the fact that it's a sermon, um, I'm out. You know that sort of thing. Mm. Like, okay, yeah, interesting. That's a interesting articulation. Because yeah, if it was a a TED talk, um, yeah, because TED talks don't you don't have to. What I like about, again, this is probably getting way more Jesusy than you probably thought. But no, what I love about he's yeah. a really like you have to you have to make a decision. I listen to TED Talk. I don't have to make a decision. I'm like, oh, that was cool. But you 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 like take the the teachings of Jesus seriously enough that you have to like either reject them or accept them. Like that's usually the usually two options. Yeah. So the um, two two thinkers that I'd love to bring up. Um, and just get your your thoughts. This is just part of my own curiosity and conversations with you. Uh, would be one is um, so Nietzsche has this quote of "There was one Christian and we killed him," and and you know, he's in many ways father of of psychology, and he thought so much about Christianity, um, and it, it, you know he's a psychologist before the, the term psychologist existed and. And uh, thought so much about the Western civilization orientation with with Christianity, and was he's seen as as um, I think the above the line version is seen as anti Christian, but he actually was quite fearful of a society that would get rid of of its uh, foundational framework uh, that was built around uh, Christianity. Um, what what comes to mind when you hear that quote of of There's one Christian and we killed him. And what do you think the mentality would be for someone to, to, to articulate that? Because I also think so many people look at Christians and think something similar of like these people and just 
lump them together to what you were just saying. I don't want to align with quote unquote these people. Mm-hmm. Um, explain, yeah, I, I'm familiar with that quote. Explain, I guess, that what the, that because isn't the rest of the quote, God is dead, and the rest of the quote is, and we killed him? Yeah, and uh, that's a separate, it's actually separate, a separate quote, but uh, it's the same observation, I, but same, same idea of, of just a, um, there is Christ the figure, and then there is this group, yeah. Christianity. And, and I think it just, the reason I bring it up is it somewhat builds on, on what you're saying of, of not wanting to align with the horrific things that have happened within this, this, uh, whatever term you want to call it, yeah. religion, group, uh, ideology that you, you can find ways for each one to stick. But I think in a, a, if you zoom out, it's also just, I don't want to align with that group, this idea in my head yeah. of that group. I have a lot of empathy for people that have thought deeply about Christianity and has outright rejected it because of quote Jesus's people or the church or Christianity as a organized sort of religion. I think that's really hard. That's like, I think part of just like integrating the shadow side, we have to do that with our, with Christianity as well. We have to integrate that. I have to integrate being a, uh, a Christian. I have to integrate the horrific things that the church has done in with complicity to racism in America, complicity with empire in 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 uh the inquisitions. Um I have I have to have to integrate this the dark side, the dark underbelly, and be honest with it, look at it straight in the face and say, um that's a really horrific, heinous thing. And I I I can understand how you would throw out Christianity because of that. And at the same time, I think that Jesus, the way of Jesus most aligns to reality, the, the teachings of Jesus most align to reality, uh, ultimate reality. And so um, I'm, I'm gonna like, in our point in human life and human history, we'll try to align our life, my life and practice to the teachings of Jesus as I try to integrate and lament and mourn and repent of all this other stuff that we've done as well. But I have, I understand, like, I know that people will hate, hate church, especially in America today. Like, especially people that live on the coasts, like just don't like, you know, I call it churchianity or not. I call it, it's been called churchianity, like the Christian nationalistic American church. And I, you know, I understand that. What would you say is, uh, that with what you've built with reality um, overlaps with that churchianity and what uh, departs from that for your for the church that you and, and Ash have uh, built? We've tried to build our church on um, authenticity and like uh, a hope of like just taking the teachings of Jesus and saying, these are them, let's let's try to do them together by, by the, by the power of the spirit. Like, and it hasn't been like when we started the church, you know, getting back to founding something, we didn't try to do gimmicks or advertising or like, we really try to make it as authentic as to ourselves as we are. So we weren't feeling like we were acting at all. And, um, 
we tried to give people an authentic experience with with um, with God's Spirit, an authentic experience, the teachings of Jesus, to the best that we can, and then get out of the way and not and not try to mess with putting on a show or a concert or um, that sort of stuff. Hmm. So we try to build it around authenticity. So the thing that we kind of try to leave is this like sh showy, like glossy, sexy sort of like thing that the church has become and pretense and all this stuff that we kind of, you can smell. I will love about San Francisco. It smells pretense like a mile away. It, it, it really does value authenticity. Um, and so I just found ourselves, Ash and I found ourselves home here because we were able just to be ourselves and go, um, this is the church. This is who we are. This is the teaching of Jesus. And, um, and we hope you follow him, that sort of thing. So keep we try simple. to, yeah, we try to keep it that simple. Yeah. Well, and for, for listeners that you, you also leverage technology quite well living in San Francisco, great, uh, podcasts that people can listen to, um, that are your sermons. Um, but if it makes you feel better, you can call them lectures, lectures. On, on things from, from everything. And what I love about it is it will touch on things from friendship to, uh, it'll touch on listening to, uh, race, really, really powerful topics that aren't just kind of hitting the same thing over and over again, but taking this coherent philosophy, applying it to to these places in really thoughtful ways that apply. That's what I love about going to reality. It is a great contemplative, it's about two hours or an hour and a half, but mm -hmm. contemplative time in, in the week to just go way outside of tech mm -hmm. and blogs on productivity and uh, podcasts and TED Talks and, uh, and Q&As and Twitter that are really just really staying not even 10 meters deep really for the most part staying about five meters yeah. above uh, maybe dipping two three four meters below but it is such a um to to your point a philosophical contemplation um and uh, amongst uh, you know within so many different topics mm -hmm. that just i grew up catholic never heard the tenets of of christianity applied to such practical things that I think um, you really know your audience of you know the skeptical intellectual 20 30 something um, mm -hmm. Christian in San Francisco the other thing that that um, that came to mind oh and we can pause for a second um, do you need to stretch your legs or anything no I'm good okay um, is there any topic that you want me to make sure to, to no, rope in no, that, you, great. that you would find interesting yeah I and mean, you can steer this conversation where you want to if it's getting too no, I, 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 this is my favorite episode Churchy. I've done. Okay. No, you, totally can, to you. you can take it wherever you want. No, you, I'm not saying the same thing. You can take it wherever you want. Well, and how long do you want these things to go? Two hours. Really? Oh yeah. Long form. Yeah. Oh wow. Oh, dude, That's awesome. It doesn't cost anything. Once people start listening, yeah. I've actually heard from listeners that they really want, they like that they can just put it on the background and not have to hit play or find another episode. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they'll listen to it over the course of two, three days. Yeah. And not have to keep finding episodes. Yeah. So, yeah. Johnny, you can take all this stuff out, but, uh, or but not. Yeah, yeah. Or not. You can leave this stuff in. Actually, um, Johnny, yeah. Uh, feel free to, uh, leave all of that in. No, below the, no let's leave it in the below the line version. Uh, below the line, below the line. Exactly. Um, so the, um, 
The other thought that comes to mind is, uh, is um, are you familiar? I'm sure you're familiar with Joseph Campbell. No. Um, Hero's Journey and Hero with oh, a Thousand yes. Faces. Yes, and, yes, yes, yes. And uh, kind of social commentator in the 20th century. Um, I don't think he was particularly spiritual or, or he was spiritual. I don't think particularly uh, Christian, but he had this this idea similar to to Nietzsche's views and kind of fear for a world that that would lose its its framework um, or coherent philosophy that for all of its uh, horrific downsides provided a very helpful framework in Nietzsche's mind. Joseph Campbell, in the same way, said that um, it's irreversible. And we have crossed the threshold and now we're free, he called it free falling into the future. Mm. We've lost our mooring and and maybe for good reason. He actually just does not take a, a position one way or the other, but you know, quite literally describes it free falling into the future. San Francisco is a city that that in many ways is described as kind of living in the future, getting apps and self-driving cars and things like that few years ahead of uh of other cities in the US and uh and around the world and does that phrase free falling into the future does that is that part of what you mean by when you're choosing when you're your own philosopher and you have to pick and choose that um that it in some way is is a pretty um at least i guess in your mind really risky endeavor yeah, I think I think that's a really good observation that you bring bring up from both of those those um, thinkers, because and this is kind of how I've and this is my this is my like way of thinking. If if I'm if I'm the person that is always shifting and changing, and there's nothing to to anchor me, I'm I am literally free floating into my own sort of like whatever, whatever I like, whatever I like, whatever sounds good to me. And I just don't know where that, how that that I don't think that leads into to anywhere anywhere good. I mean personally I don't. Um I know people have done a lot of really horrible things in the name of religion. I think it's because it's a, a really horrible way of looking at the the way the way they have interpreted the way of Jesus. So when you get back to like the teachings of Jesus and the way of Jesus, I think those things are really, really important and coherent. And I think San Francisco is the future. And what I like about ministering in San Francisco is that it's so far in the future that ancient practices are attractive again, right? Like the idea of a Sabbath. When I talk about a Sabbath with people, they're like, I want, I want that. You mean you get a day of rest? That sounds amazing. And it's a ritual. Dude, I'm a walking San Francisco cliche because I have all my calendar Saturdays, no screen Saturdays. Yeah. Which is a Sabbath. Right. Like you're literally saying a Sabbath. Do you um, mind describing for, for listeners what you mean by Sabbath? And yeah. I know you touched on it a little bit with you and Ash. Yeah. So uh, a Sabbath is a 24 hour day of rest like a, a literal day of rest where you're delighting. We, we start our Sabbath with a meal um, and, a, and an ancient Jewish blessing that 
the woman of the house always does where she lights candles and and says a, a Hebraic prayer and then over the house and over her table. And then I just turn to everyone in the house and just say Shabbat Shalom to everyone, you know, to whoever's at our house for dinner or just our family, Shabbat Shalom to Ashley, Shabbat Shalom to Juniper, Shabbat Shalom to Prince the Golden Golden mm-hmm. Doodle, and Shabbat Shalom to Dave. And then um, we... You say it to yourself? Yeah. And we just, Shabbat Shalom is like to bring in the God's peace. Like we just want to just rest. Where it feels like um, this is how I, I try to practice... Um, knowing that I'm, it's the same reason why I go to sleep every night. I'm practicing with my body that I'm not, I'm not God. I don't control everything. I need to rest. I need to let my mind rest. I need to let, I need to let, I need to let my body rest. Um, this isn't just good for me physically. It's good for me spiritually, you know, like a whole person. And, um, we sleep in and then we have our, uh, we do, Ash and I will, We'll read. I'll read. Typically, I try to read poetry on, on, on my Sabbath, and read a lot of the Psalms, and uh, and then get myself into a good novel, and then we go for a really long walk, and um, we we practice like Eucharisto, which is like gratitude. We go through our week and just like what are we thankful for, and then we recite that, and then we um, we try to walk slow, and mindfully, kind of like we said, like I I said previously. So we do this every week. Build this rhythm in. To where um, I don't show up as like someone who is producing anything. I'm showing up as someone who's just like receiving from God, like the goodness of his world, his creation, resting. Um, that's usually, we do that every week. And so to talk about the future, San Francisco, I think it's so far ahead that we realize even as far ahead as we are, we still can't solve everything. I think we're the, like San Francisco's on the front line of like, we actually can't solve it all, even though we want to. And then we try to hack the mind. We try to hack everything. There's limits. And I, and so when you invite people to, to embrace their limits, live under Sabbath, live under intermittent fasting, live under meditation, all these are ancient practices that San Francisco's, San Franciscans eat up. Like, yes. I want that. I remember you you had a quote two or three years ago that was uh, that you brought up that I can't remember who said it, but it was in one of your sermons where you said uh, San Francisco is the quote goes San Francisco Cisco is the most un-American city where America gets made. Yeah, yeah, that's Rebecca Solnit. She she she's a she wrote a San Francisco Atlas. She that's in her intro. Yeah, San Francisco is the left left coast uh, left part of the left coast, the most un-American city where America invents itself. Yeah. Invents itself. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, so in this, in this, uh, time of, of 2019 that we're finding ourselves, um, in, I think you're totally, you're, you're touching on something pretty significant that is happening that we're kind of in the boiling water. We forget that it's happening, but if you look around just, um, all of these, ancient practices like we're we're just like just the thought comes to mind of just like piecemealing like rescuing this from 3,000 years ago this from 1,500 years ago this from 2,000 years ago and it is the city almost by definition last decade 
and it has had uh, many kind of common threads around this in some senses, but really, you know, last decade was let's move beyond, let's leave the rest of the world behind. So much of, of tech is anything that's 18 months or older is obsolete. Mm -hmm. And, um, and yet I think it's a, uh, I think it's a, it's an interesting observation that, that the biggest trends that are happening right now are things like no screen Saturdays. So true. Or work from home Wednesdays. Yeah. Or, uh, and really adhering to no devices after eight. Yeah. Or meditation. Yeah. Or and I fasting. think everyone in, in the valley knows how bad that stuff is for you. We all know. We all know it is. We all know to keep our kids off it until a certain age, um, limit screen time. We know what it does to the brain. I, I mean, the, the research is out. We it's not it's not any any huge secret. Um, and I think integrating tech. They, I think that tech with a with a conscience is actually having to ask themselves questions: What are we doing to, to the human brain, the human body, and then how then do we help people build in rhythms of discipline because they won't do it themselves? I think it's the same thing that you know you watch documentaries on the food industry, all this stuff, stuff that you wish that the food industry would have done, you know, twenty years ago, thirty years ago, um, to regulate some of the ways that it was habituating people towards um obesity you wish that they would have put in these things i think tech now is faced with the same sort of stuff like in 30 years from now when there's a documentary made about tech do you want to be the, the people that self-regulate to go we know what this is doing mm -hmm. and we're, we're we're putting in safeguards to make sure that that we're not pushing like technical tech obesity or whatever you know that whatever form of like we're so addicted to our phones or our tech now that we can't be human. Like I, I think there's there's a stream of conscious tech that's thinking about this now. Like we don't want to be speaking of you know again bringing up wrong side of history. We don't want to be, we don't want to be what what we what we fight um, with you know whether it's food industry or alcohol industry, whatever industry that just gets Americans addicted to their thing. Mm -hmm. Even though, no matter how unhealthy we think, we know that, that we're making people cigarettes, all that stuff. Tech is the same sort of, the power is there. And it's just asking the questions like, what are we doing to people and how do we build in? I mean, yeah, I mean, it totally, talking about being on the wrong side or, or, and I, I love the point that you made about history is not linear. It's pretty expansive, but there are points in time when you can look back and say, wow, okay, there was, there were people in this uh, vocal minority that were in the right side mm -hmm. that helped uh, that helps uh, correct the path. But when what you is... consciously know what you're doing and you do it anyways, that's yeah. like, that's, that's pretty heinous. That's like, when you know, we know what this does, right. but we know what crack cocaine does, but we're still going to sell it to you. Well, what in right in line with what I was going to say is it's, it is just a, articulate how easy it is to be on the wrong side. You look around your livelihood, your community, the phrases that that people use that can and and the value placed on those things. Like the value if the value system is building a billion dollar company as fast as possible. Yeah. And the articulate the language used is engagement. Build engagement with your application. Yeah. yeah. Number of of users, users yeah. customers. Clicks, all that. Clicks. It is 
it's when you actually lift up your lift your head up it's actually outrageous how much we are talking about addiction yeah that's what we're talking about it's, get someone addicted to, to your a, product right to your app whatever right and it's and yeah it is not something that is affecting their lungs so you know you're not getting um clobbered by the the media in, in that regard but you are literally and i know this from friends that i know love brilliant compassionate smart uh soul-filled people that still will go to work at a place where all day they're using words like engagement retention minutes on the application mm -hmm. and it's abstracted away from words like addiction yeah and how do you grow that addiction yeah i mean bringing it back to madmen you watch these madmen and they're saying they're there's they're like um their rationalization is almost the same as we use today i would imagine that or in boardrooms and tech boardrooms the same sort of rationalization like people could choose for themselves mm. you know they 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 can self-regulate we don't have to regulate they can the same thing you're pushing cigarettes like oh they can choose for themselves if they want to smoke or not right. like no 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 it's not put, not fun that research that shows that the addiction to this product is actually destroying their their tension or their brain or their whatever um and it's i think that they're sh they're what i try to weave into people that are in tech at our church and there's a lot i think i don't know the percentage i forget i know we just did a survey and we had it i don't know the number off the top of my head but um is to get people to think to, to think holistically about what we do um to be mindful consciousness right towards like what are you doing what are you building what is this adding to the world um that sort of thing that's i think that's a really important important piece so you know going back to um going back to like i mean how do we get here coherent philosophy that and free falling into the future and uh, or yeah. what do you see as a as a, a pastor in a city that is quote unquote living in the future yeah well it's it i, I think it is a great um thread around or thought around just the, it is so when you mention it, it kind of does uh it becomes pretty clear that yeah there are pockets of san francisco that are pulling out these these thousand uh thousand year old here wendell barking in the background you know these ancient this ancient wisdom um and and hopefully that is a uh i mean to that quote where uh what was it where it's the most un-american city where america reinvents itself no event invents itself yeah. invents itself so maybe that is what's what's happening uh, yeah. in this in this shift yeah that's the hope i mean i've i've never been uh i've never moved here uh well let me let me rephrase this i haven't lived in san francisco with a sense of hopelessness at all like a lot of people like you're trying to do um a church in san francisco like isn't that a pretty godless place and i just find the inroads to the way of jesus to be everywhere and this is one of them like mm -hmm. like these ancient if you get back to even jesus's like prayer and fasting and giving alms you know like i can't think of one person that i've met services that would like disagree with those things 
Right. It's like built in to, I think we're backing into a lot of that stuff. Like we realizing, oh, the importance of prayer and meditation is super, super important. Um, and, you know, the importance of integrating our mind and our body. It's like, like mindfulness to our body and what's going on with our body, making sure that our body doesn't rule us. Um, our appetites don't rule us, right? That mm -hmm. our will is shaped by something bigger than our than our guttural appetites. Right. You know, Paul the Apostle talks about like God being our belly, like making sure that God is in our belly. Our, you know, he doesn't mean like, he means just our appetites, like our guttural first initial response appetites aren't aren't what's leading us. It's actually our values, our our will is, and I think what this with fasting gets to. And um and to um giving alms, which I think again. San Francisco, it's, I, I, I see the homelessness in San Francisco as being a, a wonderful opportunity to remember, to remember our limitless, our, our limitedness, how we're limited. We can't solve it all, but we can be involved at a very, very personal level. It's in front of us all the time. And yeah. we're able to do that. Well, the, and I think it's, it is something else that's happening in a complete parallel, um, largely disconnected world is is for the last 150 years of of just the the field of of psychology it's been about the individual yeah. and uh the individual path and things like nature versus nurture uh and it's actually in the last 10 years is starting to get completely blown up mm -hmm. because something like the the concept of epigenetics where you can inherit trauma yeah just completely blows up yeah the uh, conventional psychoanalysis of your own nature versus nurture. It's actually this third complete yeah. uh, realm of, well, maybe it was the nurture of three generations ago. Yeah. And it's, it doesn't take but 30 seconds to, to realize, okay, that kind of destroys a lot of the foundations of, of, of this uh, field of, of psychology. Yeah. And, and it's psychology is this, the reason this podcast talks about it so often because I feel like it's the the operating system of the world, and it is the the operating system within each one of us in which we make our our decisions. And and what has been interesting about just observing the field from uh, from the spectator seat is just things like epigenetics, where it's inheriting trauma in your DNA, quite outrageous of a concept uh, to any psychotherapist fifty years ago. That would have been outrageous to now the very beginning stages of thinking about collective psychology mm -hmm. that this idea that there is no just individual psychology mm -hmm. and that's what is interesting and a very different um i don't know if uh, even something like enneagram would have ever been articulated this way but it very much is kind of your seven or three or nine kind of personality um well dave thank you so much for taking time out of the afternoon to, to come on the podcast as a, a podcast built around creator psychology. I think there's something deep, profound that I'm still trying to chip away at uh, around um, this, this narrative of, of Christianity that has spoken so clearly to me as a creator, um, just the tenet of, of sacrifice, which in many ways is um, that is so in the Western world, such a, such a Christian um, tenant and and going through sacrifice for 
the usefulness of those around you yeah is such a strong tenet of of my entrepreneurship uh and creator psychology that i think is a thread that i plan on i'm sure i'm, I'm going to be able to unpack a lot of this stuff and and many conversations uh hopefully with you over over time um, but i really appreciate you kicking it off today and maybe we'll do a part two sometime soon yeah this is so fun thank you so much for the invite it's been great awesome dave thanks for joining yeah hey friends and listeners i hope you enjoyed today's episode if you want to hear more of these types of conversations go over to your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe or leave us a review good or bad we love hearing from people that that appreciate this type of conversation and want more of it you can also follow us on twitter at go below the line as well as see in our twitter bio our email address for you to shoot us a note on any suggestions of guests or topics that we should cover we read every single one so thank you for those that have already sent those in that's it for us today we will see you next time on below the line Below the Line is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts.